Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, Boy Wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusaders. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. She's sexy, she's gonna do sexy things, she's gonna steal sexy things, she's just sexy. Sexy, 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 sexy. out there. I know there are shippers out there. Yeah. Shipper. 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 I know there are shippers out there. Sawete. I'm your host, Stella, and this is Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 28 for August MMXI. Episode 28 is brought to you by this public service announcement. Stay close, Tony, so you don't get lost. Hey, look at that. I can do that. Hey, Mike! Where are you? Mike! Hey, get, take it easy. But I lost my brother and... Stay calm, think. Where did you see him last? Go back there. If he doesn't come back, ask a policeman for help. Hey, it's Alpine and my scared brother. It's not scary being lost if you don't lose your head. <laughs> now I know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe! Batgirl to Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Examples of the prices you may encounter are November's Batgirl number 3 and Birds of Prey number 3, both for $2.69. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. Well, fans and friends, it has certainly been a whirlwind ride these past few days. I have Irene coming up the coast 
crazier than a hornet's nest. Uh, right now it's a category three, at least it was before I left uh, for work this morning. And, and it was quickly uh, accelerating toward a category four hurricane. And apparently it's going to be one of the more intense hurricanes we've seen in the past decade. And people in Virginia Beach are, are dare I say, fleeing for their lives. I know that uh, Carson Newman uh, canceled classes for Friday and Monday because I have a coworker that has a son who just, this is his first year here, so he kind of just got over there. And then I have family over there because my brother is stationed uh, at the Virginia Beach Naval Base. Um, so they're, you know, coming inward. So it's just crazy. And then on Tuesday, was it? Tuesday there was a 5.8 on the Richter scale earthquake. And, and I'm in Virginia, people. So that is really far away from t And, you know, when it happened, I was at my desk at school in my classroom and started shaking a little bit, and I thought, oh, you know, people upstairs, because there's a science wing upstairs, and usually after a particular period, there's always a shifting, uh, perhaps after a lab. I'm not really sure what they do, but there's always dragging across the floors, you know, desks and chairs, and I thought, oh, well, they're shifting. But then it started getting progressively worse. So there I am kind of just sitting in my chair trying to figure out what's going on. I'm like, holy crap, it's an earthquake. So I get up and go to the door frame. It was just, it was such a surreal experience. I, I am not too proud to admit that I am, uh, that I was afraid because I've, I mean, Hello. I've never been in an earthquake. And we've actually had four aftershocks since then. We had one later that night. And then I guess I must have missed aftershock two and three. Uh, but then we had one this morning at 1 a.m. And, you know, I was in bed. I, I, I was woken up a little bit. And I thought, oh, dear, do I need to go into the uh, <laughs> door frame of my kitchen? So it has been, you know, an interesting experience. And, you know, I promised my friends Gerard and Donovan that I would also go overboard and rant about the wireless network that I tried to set up and I had just been putting things off like I, I'm fine with you know being connected wired but I decided okay set up the wireless man it took entirely too long at least an hour and 20 minutes it was I do not know what's going on but it was a fickle mister but it finally worked out and so now here I am sitting down ready to do this podcast and one last thing I do have to say that it was orientation today for the school that I worked at so I got to meet all my, my new students for this year, class starts on Monday. I have 16 students in my AP Virgil class. Now, if you recall, AP Virgil was, well, it wasn't <laughs> the best um, the best situation in the very beginning. But, you know, I started ironing out the kinks. And, and you know, the first class or set of classes really that you have are really the gerbils. That's, that's, you experiment on them, things work, they don't work. So I, I was really positive in these interviews and, you know, told them, you know, I've ironed out these, these kinks and it's, uh, I'm excited and it's going to be fun. And, and obviously I kept, you know, I, I did uh, continue to say that, you know, it is a tough course. Uh, but if you do the work, if you do the hard work, you put in your effort, then it really shows in the end. Um, so I'm hoping, uh, for those of you, if you, if you cared at all, the end, uh, results that I had for the AP test, I had, uh, three fives, which is the highest grade that you can get, three threes and two twos. So 
So we shall see. So we'll be coming back on Monday. And I think that's the class because I still have, you know, um, four other Latin classes. But that is really the class that I'm looking forward to the most because I really, I'm coming in with a positive attitude. I'm really hoping that they have a positive attitude too. And, and I, I would like it to be um, just to improve from last year. So so I'm hoping, you know, I've got a, a great first day planned, just a discussion of the Iliad because I, I had them do that for summer reading. So hopefully it, it will it will be an interesting an interesting discussion. So I'm actually excited, you know, compared to last year when I only had eight days to prepare for this and probably orientation, I was freaking out. Uh, this was just more calm and, and certainly more more optimistic and open-minded and it was definitely easier to not fake being happy and excited and and friendly to people so so another year i i just can't i don't know where the summer go to be sure where the summer go but if this year goes by quickly then hey we'll get to july 12th through 15th sdcc 1213 wait 2013 i don't even know what i said yeah sdcc 2012 2012 okay i don't know what's going on anyways so those were the things that were happening in my life i wanted to go into some news i know you guys have probably you know if you've kept up with this batgirl news obviously you know barbara gordon is the new batgirl we all know this uh we don't know what's going to happen with stephanie brown or cassandra kane it kind of seems like cassandra may be or may continue to be in batman inc and as for Stephanie, it seems like it was teased that she'll be spoiled, but really there are no set plans for her. And because we've seen what no set plans have done for Cassandra, my heart kind of weeps a little bit for that. But Batgirl, out of all the characters, I think has really reached or elicited the most... Um, emotion from fans and and the most backlash, excitement, you know, what have you, which I think is good because anything that can evoke emotion like that is a good thing, in my opinion. So obviously you've probably been hearing a lot of news, and I feel like it, you know, a little bit of news gets added each day. But, you know, Gail Simone is basically telling us that Barbara Gordon is a young woman. And I've heard her say that both she's out of the first section of college, which, to be honest, I have no idea what that means. Because that could be she finished undergraduate. Um, She has an undergraduate degree. She finished her first year of her undergrad. I don't know. She finished the fall semester. And then I've also heard her say that she's just out of college. And again, that's a little vague because college, uh, well, when you say college, it generally means you have a bachelor's. Because you would say, I just finished graduate school, to say, just finished graduate school. And then if you really want to be um, <laughs> high and mighty, then you'd say, you know, I just had a, I just got my doctorate. So I really don't know what to, to, to think about that. But so she's just out of college and she's trying to get a job in her chosen field of forensic psychology. She's the smartest member of the Bat family. She's most compassionate and she loves to help people. So I think, first of all, smartest member of the Bat family, I know a number of people have, whoop, you know, red flag kind of goes off there. And I could almost see that this is true, but. There's a debate, I think, 
whether ba Babs or Bruce is the smartest member of the family. And and I think, I mean, everyone else definitely falls short. It would be either of those two. But she definitely, I don't know. It's really tough because I can understand how a lot of people would probably think uh, that Bruce would be the smartest member besides the bat computer. No one probably takes that into consideration. But Babs has always been described as having a photographic memory. And, of course, even in, in obviously, her first term as Batgirl, she has received a doctorate and way before or well before others normally do. Um, you know, she's 25. We haven't really gotten to this yet. But she's 25 um, when she's a congresswoman. So if you think about that, I mean, normal people graduate college at 22, if they go back and get their masters, that's normally it could be upwards of two years, but normally two you know two years. So that's twenty four, and then psychology, uh, that's you know we're looking at twenty seven, and it depend. Well, I mean, sorry, as a PhD, we're looking at at least three years. So that's that's twenty seven. So to be done with all that, and that was probably congresswoman. I don't know, four years perhaps from the beginning of her of her career so if she had graduated call uh with everything as dr barbara gordon she would have been 21 that's ridiculous i i don't even know but you know and and i've heard from other news sources obviously that she's kind of in this this strange place with her education and her education and age-wise so it seems as if she's 22 or, you know, I kind of hope that she's 24 so it's a little bit reasonable. And she does have a doctorate. I don't know. I've not really heard anything specifically say what degree she has. But, and why do I care about a degree? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know why. Number one, <laughs> number one, it's in her history. Why write out the fact that she has a Ph.D.? I mean, I feel like writers kind of forgot that to begin with, but, you know, why just give her a bachelor's if, if that is indeed what they do in this uh, relaunch? I don't think they would do that. I'm hoping that they give her a Ph.D. So that's my first reason is she had it before. Why take it away now? Second reason is I did some research on forensic psychology, and up to now, I mean, probably the extent of knowledge that I had was Carly Cooper from Amazing Spider-Man and um on bones um isn't dr sweets kind of a no i guess he's a clinical psychologist but i feel like he does have he he has his fingers in forensic psychology but i, I want to look up you know and and i went on about.com who knows if that's a reasonable source at least it wasn't wikipedia but i just want to figure out what it was so hopefully i won't bore you to tears you can you know fast forward now but what is forensic psychology? So forensic psychology involves applying psychology to the field of criminal investigation in the law. Uh, what do they do? They are often involved in custody disputes, insurance claims, and lawsuits. Some professionals work in family courts and offer psychotherapy services, perform child custody evaluations, investigate reports of child abuse, and conduct visitation risk assessments. Those working in the civil courts often assess competency, provide second opinions, and provide psychotherapy to crime victims. Professionals working in the criminal courts conduct evaluations of mental competency, work with child witnesses, and provide assessment of juvenile and adult offenders. They apparently typically earn uh, $35,000 to $40,000 annually. So, 
Um, that's interesting. And what type of degree? Here's the big thing. Forensic psychologists need a doctoral degree in psychology, usually in clinical or counseling psychology. Um, there are a number of schools, such as the University of Arizona and my alma mater, or nourishing mother, offer degrees specifically designed for forensic psychology study and combined courses in both psychology and law. Such a degree typically takes five to seven years of graduate study to complete and admission into PhD programs and is highly competitive. So, really? And then, of course, um, after the appropriate education, training, and experience, forensic psychologists can apply for board certification. So we're talking about more time, in my opinion, than DC really has given to her. So, I mean, you know, comics are comics, but I feel like there does need to be some sort of realism uh within and especially for these sorts of characters that don't have powers and I mean especially Barbara Gordon whom I have often said is definitely uh, the example of the every woman someone that you you or you know females in general that I feel most connected to that I think people could really relate to and to have her fast forward through this seems unreasonable um, I guess she could have started at 16 but I don't know. So this, in general, I think is going to be really interesting to figure out how it goes down and whether or not it's it's going to be explained. So there are some things that I'm wondering when this relaunch happens. Number one, I'm wondering if she can indeed walk. Okay, one of the more controversial aspects of this whole relaunch here is that, you know, why why fix something that, you know, may not necessarily be broken that oracle uh well more than oracle perhaps but having a paraplegic hero is great i actually don't think uh my theory right now is that she is still paraplegic and she is using a suit to actually help her fight crime and for those of you that have seen the birds of prey live action series you definitely know what i'm hinting at in the fact that um, the oracle on that series actually used a suit to fight lady shiva and i feel like that is probably less of a jump than going from paralyzed barbara to walking barbara at the same time you do have to think about uh, Gail Simone and the fact that, you know, she kind of started this whole women in refrigerators movement. And she has often said that, while well, people's limbs come back. They come back from the dead. Why can't she be healed? So she kind of is for that, right? But I, I don't think that she's, t in my opinion, I don't think she's taken that leap. I wonder what's going to happen with the role of Oracle. We obviously have a Birds of Prey, and obviously there's no Oracle on the cover. Huntress is off on her own, though apparently in that miniseries, you know, it's going to somehow connect to Birds of Prey. And I think we need an Oracle. We need an info jockey that really connects the DC universe and heroes can rely on. We kind of need, right, the Misty Knight for Heroes for Hire. We need that, I think. Um, so to be without that is going to be a huge void, and the universe is not like a void. It will always fill it with something. And this is what I was talking about with Brian Hugh Miller, um, the fact that he created Wendy and he was really grooming her 
and and Oracle was grooming her to be the new Oracle, at least for Batgirl's universe. But because Oracle quote died end quote, Wendy could have definitely stepped up and been the new Oracle of this universe. But because Wendy was obviously written off, which apparently you know, in soap operas they die, but in uh, the comic world they go to Nana Parbat. Because she was written off, we I we perhaps don't have an Oracle, and and I don't know what to to think about that. I wonder about Barbara's characterization. Stephanie Brown, what I liked about the first year um, is that she messed up. Uh, it seemed realistic. You know, she had her term as spoiler and a little bit as Robin, but Batgirl is such a new thing, and it was really kind of flying by the seat of her pants, figuring out what to do, fixing it, and everything like that. So, but she really learned, and then, you know, season two was really honing her, not really, I'm sorry, Josh, a year two was really honing her abilities. And so I'm wondering, is Batgirl going back to this rookie? Or is she just going to be a veteran, like, oh, yeah, this is how it was going to be? I think it would feel really weird to see Barbara Gordon, a hero that's been around since 1967, since maybe, I don't know, year four of the Batman legacy. I don't know. I could be corrected on that. To see someone like that messing up and, and doing rookie mistakes. However, you have to realize that this is her first... Um, walk as a walking hero, as Batgirl, out in the field. She hasn't been out in the field for a while. So I could see her making some physical mistakes, at least. So it's quite a different thing to learn, to learn um, from a book, from a manual, and then be put into a simulation. Because, And that's the difference, because some people are book smart, right? And then some people have the, the street smarts that they can actually apply it. And Babs definitely has the book smarts, but does she have the street smarts? Can she apply it? And right now, I I don't... It's, it's, it's hard to say, but I think it would be better storytelling to have her making mistakes rather than her being this perfect, this perfect hero. So obviously I talked about a little bit about her job and, and education. I don't necessarily like this forensic psychology. Obviously, I mean, it gives her the ability to be close to crimes, which is good. Uh, you know, Nightwing had his stint as a police officer. But, I mean, the feel of... of the character we always want to see her kind of in the library and I guess it was just happenstance when when bad guys would come into the library she'd she'd find something out sitting with her father and I guess we don't have that opportunity anymore but I still am going to miss her you know being in the library so I'm just wondering how this 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 job this forensic psychology is going to work out for her and also I'm wondering if how much we're going to see of that life because Brian Q. Miller did a, a great job of balancing Steph's college life with her Batgirl life. And that's something that I think we, we definitely need. And the final thing I'm, I'm also wondering about is this relationship with Dinah Lance. I've spoken many times on, on this Dinah-Babs relationship because I really love it. They really bring out the best of each other and... Just having someone like that, you know, a sisterly type, the, the best friend that you could ever have, someone that you will absolutely go to, you know, when anything happens. I think that's really important to keep somebody grounded and to not see Babs on the cover of Birds of Prey for whatever reason and to have Dinah in this strange dynamic. I'm just wondering where that weaves this friendship. And I just 
think that it is such an important relationship that has been built since Birds of Prey first started. To, to So to see that go away seems like characters have also, the characters have lost something and that readers have lost something as well. So those are all of my concerns. You know, gosh, we have a countdown going until number one comes out. I guess all we can do is wait and see how it turns out. Okay, but enough of that kind of dark and depressing stuff. Let's get into <laughs> these great reviews. Now we've we've gone into a new era with Batman Family number one, The Invader from Hell. Came out September slash October nineteen seventy five. Writer Elliot Superman Magan and art Mike Grell. Also included in this issue is the Great Handcuff King, Commissioner Gordon's Death Threat, and Challenge of the Man Bat. The cover and the first page are definitely a nice intro to the story, more acting as as a tease than it really gives information. So Congresswoman Gordon is in Washington speaking to her fellow representatives. She wishes to tell them about some stunning events that happened the previous week as she was filming a broadcast on the upcoming Bicentennial. Backflash. Babs is in front of a camera speaking on Colonel Benedict Arnold, with Dick Grayson giving her cue cards, when suddenly a likeness of Arnold pops out of the frame and tries to destroy the film. It seems that he is upset by his portrayal. Nearly sliced in half, Babs pretends to be faint, just to get out of the room and change into Batgirl. Dick helps her out and is confused as to why she is trying to get rid of him, no matter, as he has business as Robin. He goes back into the television studio and witnesses Arnold burning the film with a touch of his sword. Robin attempts to get the better of Arnold, but finds that he has underestimated the historical figure. Right before Robin is about to get hit, Batgirl throws a rope around the colonel and he disappears, leaving behind a fiery warning that says, Do not interfere with my plans. The next day, Babs is back to her duties, and some students are in her office asking her questions that have absolutely nothing to do with politics. We learn that Dick is her aide while he is on vacation from Hudson University. Babs notices a signal that tells her there is a vote in the house, and she rushes there. Dick finds this odd, as he doesn't remember there being any votes on the docket. It appears that Benedict Arnold has returned, with an assistant next to him, to tell the house of his evil plans. He has placed troops across the river from the Pentagon, and they will soon be moving to put the capital under his control. Dick leaps into action as Robin, and Babs hurries out as Batgirl. Robin takes a ride on the Washington Monument, I'm not really sure how he got his rope up there, and then jumps aboard Batgirl's bat bike. While the two make a valiant effort, they find that they are outmatched against Arnold's army. Later, they are dragged through the streets in some timber, apparently a colonial means of transport often used for thieves, cutthroats, and scoundrels, and then hanged upside down in an elaborate trap, wherein if one person loosens the rope with a free hand, the other will plummet to his or her death. Batgirl and Robin reach at the same time, fall at the same time, and save each other. Arnold is shocked, and his assistant seems to have more power than we realize, as he tells Arnold it is over. Arnold begs to try again and is given one last opportunity. As some swords magically appear, Batgirl and Robin versus Arnold commences. Arnold tries to use the sword's powers against the duo, but is once again outwitted by them as they combine their swords to give him a shock. 
In a final surprise, the assistant turns into Mephisto. I, I, I mean Satan. He says that Arnold failed, and America's spirit is as strong as ever. Batgirl realizes that Satan was after them and wanted to use them to bring America down. In staying true to their heroism, they became symbols for the nation and the nation's identity. After all is said and done, Robin tries to get Batgirl to quit the hero business and caps it with a kiss on the cheek. Babs is tired of this routine and stops Robin by kissing him full on the lips. Shipper! Get over your own shipping bullshit. Whoa, whoa, Heather. That was rude. I'm sorry. That's um, my friend, Heather Glenn. She, she, I don't know what to say about her. Anyways, Robin, he flies away, stuttering. The issue finishes by returning to Babs' speech to Congress, so basically flashing forward to the present. As she finishes her story, she remarks that America must stay strong and guard itself. Dick is in the audience, and Babs gets some loud applause. The next issue of Batman Family is actually going to show people the first collaboration between Batgirl and Robin, but apparently this is unofficial. So, Detective Comics number 369, Batgirl breaks up the dynamic duo, was their first actual team-up, and then they teamed up again in 400 and 401, but DC is calling this um, unofficial, and then the one I'm doing right now, Batman Family, is apparently their official team-up. What the difference is, I have no idea. Perhaps because Batman is, is not involved at all. It's just these two on their own. The next page, actually after this story ends, has the origins of Batgirl and Robin and a, a little promo to send in some letters, which will be interesting to say the least. Okay, so I find it amusing how Dick is introduced here, you know, as, as if we were watching TV. Hold it a second. And notice who that is, making sure the congresswoman doesn't muff her lines. And then, of course, they have a headshot of Dick right there. It's interesting how the Dick-Babs interactions are written in this issue. It's very professional, and Babs only seems to view him as an aide. She often notes how hard he works, even going so far as to say he is a better man than Bruce Wayne, his guardian. In short, their, you know, their relationship is very impersonal, even though they've obviously met a few times before. I guess their past meetings were more just chance encounters, and like Betty and Flash, they never really had any personal conversations. What is even more strange is the fact that Dick, both internally and externally, calls the congresswoman Babs, as if they have indeed had closer dealings. So on Babs' side, it's definitely, it's strictly professional, but then you have on Dick's side, it seems as, you know, at least they're acquaintances or know someone in common, i.e. Bruce. It's funny that one of her students, and, and you know, to be honest, I still don't know what type of class Babs is holding here, asks point blank if Babs is dating Clark Kent. Uh, but I, I do like Babs's answer, very politician, uh, you know, very reserved, and, and just states that, yes, indeed, she does know Clark Kent. It is such a grand moment to see the two team up, uh, you know, again, no matter what the editor says. But I find it really interesting that you never actually see Robin on her cycle behind her. And this, I'm going to start keeping track of this. You mark my words. You see him swinging toward it, and then you see him leaping off a few panels later, or I guess just a panel later. Perhaps, you know, the writers didn't want anyone to get any romantic notions uh, from, from something so intimate. 
it's it's very strange, or it was strange, to see Batgirl and Robin being dragged through the street on a log and then pulled up into the air in an elaborate death device. I like how there was no moment's hesitation for either of the heroes as they loosen themselves and then, of course, fall. This final fight is interesting, especially since the two heroes are obviously outmatched with a sword. You know, and, and even Robin um, states his ignorance, saying, you know, he took fencing a little bit, but he's really not that good with a sword. According to the devil, you know, they somehow make it to a church, though it seems like really an easy way to finish the issue. Oh, there's a church. You, you can't do any more, Benedict. This building has no identifiable markings, and nor does Arnold seem the least bit phased when they're all doing this fighting in its portico. Um, maybe there is a strict rule for for demons that it's just the inside of the church, but I feel like on its property there's still a holy aura about it. I mean, it is you know God's house, so you would think that there'd be kind of an invisible bubble around it. I think that the you know the story was was curious to begin with. What with Benedict Arnold as the main antagonist, and then it really seemed to leap to a new level of weird with Satan all of a sudden calling the shots and trying to tear down America through her ideals of heroism. I think it it really does show the importance of these two heroes, you know, and and really Robin has been playing second string to Batman for a long time, and and Batgirl even more so. So I think that's it. it this is a great issue for them. I was a little annoyed with Dick for pulling that Silver Age crap at the end. You know, I think Babs has proven herself enough. Heroine isn't work for a woman? Bah. You know, then we have two, count them, two shipping moments. Dick kisses Babs on the cheek and then Babs kisses Dick while, while dipping him, to be sure. This is the moment, people. This is what has launched a thousand fanfics and shippers galore. We shall soon see how this all progresses. As an interesting side note, Babs calls him kid at the end, obviously sensing the age difference. So if Dick is at Hudson U, I'm I'm gonna guess that he's either eighteen or nineteen. And of course we're we're gonna later find out Babs's age, uh, but even though I did spoil it above or earlier, I think I'll I'll save it until we come upon it. As a final comment, it really is nice that Babs is getting cheers in Congress uh, compared to the beginning of the issue where there are rude people in the, in the foreground of one of the panels just playing cards. Uh, go fish. I don't know. You know, 9 out of 10 bats. It was strange, but I actually really liked the story. I thought it was fast. It was full of surprises. And, of course, sparks flew as Dick and Babs got a little hot and heavy. Uh, so let's definitely keep these stories coming. Now, I just mentioned shippers. Get over your own shipping bullshit. I don't really have this noted in my show notes here, but I feel like it, it's going to start to get more intense as we go along. And if you do not know what shippers are, I have decided to, to let you in on this, this wonderful world of shippers. So, shippers come from relationship. Let me cut it off and just call it a ship. So, shippers basically root for a particular ship to happen. So if I say that I ship Batgirl and Robin, then I'm basically saying that I'm all for them getting together. 
And this actually all started around uh, the X-Files uh, when people were doing fanfics and trying to get Mulder and Scully together. So, so people were shipping them. They were for that ship or that relationship. So that's what shippers are. So it, it's going to, um, I'm not going to get tired of it, but it's going to get kind of hot and heavy. And it's starting right now, and then hopefully it'll increase, and then goes down probably a little bit and then it'll go up again I could make a flow chart and then and then send it out uh, but I, I just thought I would let you guys in on that I'm not going to be reviewing Batman Family number two because it's just reprinting Detective Comics number 369 but I thought I would note some interesting things first um, it also reprints the first appearance of Clue Master aka Arthur Brown aka Stephanie Brown's father and he originally appeared in Detective Comics number 351. Second, in the Detective Comics number 369 reprint, the narrator points out that Babs was a librarian back then, and Dick was still in high school, and Bruce still lived in a suburban mansion. Whatever the difference between suburban and the mansion he's got now, who knows. It is, it is really interesting that this particular issue is what makes it on the cover, so 369. You know, really giving Batgirl and Robin precedence over Batman, which does not normally happen. And finally, in this reprint, there is a spotlight on the Bat family. But Batgirl, hello, is nowhere to be seen. You know, rather we have Batwoman and Batgirl, Bat-Girl, let me be clear on that, with little Bat-Mite and uh, history of the characters. So we kind of learn a lot from that. It's interesting to see that, you know, Dick could potentially be 18 in Batman Family number one, and then we go back um, to Detective Comics number 369, and he's in high school, so who knows, 16? I'm not sure. So kind of interesting. But anyways, let's just let's just continue on. So Batman Family number three, Isle of a Thousand Thrills, came out in January slash February nineteen seventy six. Writer Elliot Superman Magan, artist J. L. Garcia Lopez and Vince Coletta. Also included in this issue are The Challenge of the Batwoman, Crimes of the Kite Man, and The Year Three Thousand. Don't try to sound macho with me, kid. You're trying to sound like old bats, but your heart isn't in it. That's the quote that I picked out from this one. The issue begins with an U.S. Army Air Force plane landing in Provincetown, a small community at the tip of the historic Cape Cod Bay. Frank Gilbert, a photographer at the Hudson U paper, races to the plane in hopes of catching Major Montana. Instead, we see Congresswoman Barbara Gordon and Senator Robert Cleary coming out from the plane. Later, Frank tells Dick of the arrival of the politicians, but he still wishes he would have seen Major Montana. Dick realizes that he should not bump into Babs, thinking that she would put two and two together if Robin also appeared in this small town. Later, in an ice cream parlor, Frank, Dick, and two girls are having some Sundays when Babs and Bobby appear. Dick makes a quick exit when a Plesaurus emerges from the water outside the parlor. Babs also makes a quick exit, and both Batgirl and Robin push the dinosaur back into the water. The dynamic duo jump into a boat and decide to follow the monster. They then happen upon an island of some tourists, is it Gilligan in the gang, and a T-Rex. Duo uses some aerobatics to shove a large log in the dinosaur's mouth. His pride bruised, the T-Rex wanders off, but the folks are not free from danger yet. Next we see a group claiming to be the Spanish Inquisition and demanding the heretics and wishes, witches, i.e. all the guests on the island, to be taken to the castle. 
Robin and Batgirl, along with some civilians, fight off the Inquisition and decide to find this castle. Just as the group begins their trek, the Spanish Inquisition arrives, this time in different garb, claiming that they are the Thought Police. As Robin prepares an attack, Frank Gilbert arrives with the photos he took of the sea monster from earlier. It seems that the photos came out blank. An old man appears in the bushes. No, it's not Charles Marlowe from Heart of Darkness, but Major Montana. Major explains that due to his media career pushing him to create spectacular things to thrill people, he decided to create an entire island of these things. While Robin is upset that Major would find the harrowing things that they went through fun, and that he clearly endangered the other people's lives, Major explains that the people have never been as excited, and on this island they too can be a hero. As the issue ends, the people ride away in a blue whale submarine, yes, really, and Batgirl and Robin have a nice chat back in Provincetown. Holy revealed identities! Dick reveals that he knows Batgirl's Babs, and Babs reveals that she knows Robin is Dick, and neither reveal how they know. What a dirty trick. Okay, first of all, who is this Bobby character? Yeah, that's what I'm going to jump in first after I drop that bombshell. Who is this Bobby character? You know, we saw him before when Superman first came to D.C., Washington, D.C., and now we have Babs rubbing elbows with him yet again. What about poor Jason? Gosh, out of sight, out of mind, I guess. You know, finally, Dick shows concern that Babs could indeed figure out that he's Robin, and yet Batgirl appears moments after Babs flees from the diner. The Babs and Batgirl syndrome strikes again. You know, at first we, we show some smarts. Wow. If Babs sees me here and then I appear as Robin, she could put two and two together. But he's apparently not smart enough to think the other way around. Very strange. I also, you know, have to wonder why no one thought it was strange that Robin knew Frank by both his first and last name rather than just calling him Citizen or the like when he popped up on that island. It's actually a little strange, to be honest, that Frank even pops up on that island. If you find something strange, don't you think you would go down the street? and maybe tell an officer or something. We have Robin practically kicking the Loch Ness Monster back into the water, and I don't know what to think of that. Oh, and did you notice, I told you folks, that again we have the artist preventing Batgirl and Robin from being on the same motorcycle. Is this a co coincidence? Do they wish the heroes to retain some sense of propriety? I have no idea. And more Silver Age sexism. Robin is overly concerned for Batgirl's safety, as if she were a civilian, even though she has proven herself time and again. And we she sticks it to him. You know, you'd think he would have learned his lesson from the previous issue. He probably should have added tongue this time. Uh, but <laughs> you would also think that he would potentially realize that, that Batgirl is older than he is, but and perhaps he's clued in, but I guess he, he doesn't really care. I like the aerobatic routine that Batgirl and Robin have. It's, it's definitely a precursor to Birds of Prey number 8, and I think it really brings in Robin's circus past. You know, I never expected to have purple Klansmen in my comic. Maybe I'm not as versed in history as I thought, but I frankly didn't think that the Spanish Inquisition wore purple robes like this. You know, if the dinosaurs weren't enough, we have Robin allowing a civilian to fight one of these bad guys, and then a hopeless photographer trying desperately to find background Robin, as if they are the only ones who could figure out what's going on in his, in his photograph. And then, oh my gosh, totally a butt shot 
of Batgirl. I have never seen this before at all in any of the issues. Just bam. I think Michael, Michael Bailey would definitely say that it was um, foreshadowing perhaps. Benet's, maybe Benet's uh, looked at this particular panel and that's how he became the artist that he is today. And then, if you can believe it, Stan Lee appears. Hello, true believers. I'm an old man, much older than I look. Throughout my career, I've tried to create spectacular things to thrill people. Books, movies, cartoons, television, even a comic book or two. At this stage of my life, I decided it's time to do something big, really big, to make lots and lots of happiness. Happiness? You call running every which way, dodging dinosaurs, and outrunning the Inquisition fun? Of the most throwing type, my boy. I mean, why do you and the young lady wear those costumes? And roam the country like knights in armor, righting wrongs, if you don't think it's fun. Actually, I do get kind of a charge out of it, but Robin and I are used to that sort of thing. These people, these people all had a better time than you did, Batgirl. Precisely because they're not used to it. He's right. On this magic isle, anyone can be a hero. And this isle of a thousand thrills is yours, good people. A gift from old Major Montana to the young and the young of heart of the world forever. Yeah, that's, that's, that's... <laughs> See, I'm speechless. No, that's definitely, that's Stanley, to be sure. So apparently we basically have John Hammond, I mean Montana, creating a pre-Jurassic Park for kicks and giggles because he thinks people will enjoy getting a pants-wetting experience that they would normally never get. Okay, you know, those people were not happy and excited. They thought they were going to die. Now all of a sudden they are super stoked to be on this island. Clearly the writers were on drugs when they wrote this issue because... You know, if, if if you have any doubts, there is a blue whale submarine. Seven out of ten bats. This is such a weird issue. What pulls the grade up for me is the fact that Dick Owen partially suffered from the Babs and Batgirl syndrome. Definitely the smartest thing that has happened, uh, I would say, in the Bat family so far, um, where it's involving identities. And the fact that the two know each other's IDs. Now, before I, I take a break, I would like to look at this letters page. And I knew it had been here, and I'm excited that I finally got to it. So, this letters page, oh boy, it is all about Robin and Batgirl. Dear Editor, What can you say about a comic mag that is years overdue and finally arrives? One word, Fantastic! First of all, your formula is nothing less than perfect. The Robin Batgirl team has tremendous possibilities. Their first adventure together, the invader from hell, had some flaws. But the artwork was not one of them. It was perfect, all the way through. Those shots of Robin swinging down on Benedict Arnold and onto Batgirl's cycle were great, and the sword play at the end was the highlight of the story. Elliot Superman Magan is a great sculptor, but... Well, the American spirit idea was inspirational, but if the devil can't even get himself a couple of young souls, what's he doing trying to possess the soul of, ahem, a whole country? Also, please stop this too-dangerous-for-you routine that Robin pulled on Batgirl. He should know he couldn't convince the Domino Daredevil to quit just like that. 
Batman tried that same stunt on the original Batwoman, and it didn't work on her either. High points of the scripting. Barbara Gordon's closing speech to Congress, the devil's admittance of defeat to the American spirit, the mention of Clark Kent and Bruce Wayne, and Arnold's stunned look at seeing background Robin, both escaping from his colonial death trap. Rod McLaughlin, Ramsey, Montana. I should meet this Rod. Our first issue evoked a flood of mail, which we're still wading through and prompted this double-page barrage of reader reactions. BR. Dear Editor, Batman Family Number 1 mocked a double event, the return of Batgirl in a series and the birth of a team of heroes who coincidentally turn up in the same place when an emergency strikes. However, since Robin is supposed to be trained in observation and deduction by the Batman, it would be asking too much of us to believe if he does not figure out red-headed Badge Gordon and Batgirl are one and the same. She too should have some suspicions about Dick, though she might be less certain since beautiful redheads are not as plentiful as athletic black-haired guys. Knowing each other's identity, they will be able to operate more efficiently as a team. The story itself was well scripted. The idea of old Nick trying to conquer the spirit of America by capturing the souls of its heroes is very effective. Managing this by fear and prejudice, both of which were underplayed, was perfect. Tom Murphy, Newark, New Jersey. As you've seen in this issue's team-up tale, Tom, our dynamic duo have put their detective powers to work. Just what they do with their newfound knowledge is another story for another issue. Sirs, I enjoyed your idea of teaming Robin with Batgirl. Recently, the teen wonder has been overshadowed by his masked mentor. He is not Batman's equal, but neither is he the pump-filled little boy Batman took under his wing. Batgirl is actually a very lucky lady. She has had very little training, but seems to get on by her natural flair for the job. With the Batgirl Robin team, neither can be too much greater than the other. They can teach each other and learn from one another. This team-up could give both a chance to develop into heroes as great or greater than Batman himself. Amoret Fries, Marcy, Montana. Most of our readers like the idea of the team-up, but not one. Dear Editor, After 35 years of being in Batman's shadow, Robin has finally emerged to be placed under Batgirl's shadow. Please understand, I like Batman family, I'm glad to see Batgirl back in a regular feature, but I think it's only fair that Robin get a chance to branch out a little without constantly being eclipsed by Bat-somebody. Please don't force him to share top billing with a Bat-character every issue. T.E. Pouncey, Douglas, Kansas Robin will be fine flying solo from time to time, just as he did in Detective Comics. Matter of fact, he'll be on his own in a story next issue. Dear Editor, I loved your Batman family number one. But don't you think Batgirl was a little powerful on that kiss? No wonder Robin was stunned. Beth Wolf, no address given. I like the look on Robin's face after Batgirl laid that giant smackaroo on his kisser. Ken Mayer Jr., Hill AFB, Utah. That kiss on page 17 really turned me off. Batgirl's an extremely mature woman, and Robin is still a boy, so please eliminate these. Will Batgirl and Robin have a romance situations? Tom Epps, Bloomington, Indiana. Oh, love the way Batgirl shut Robin up on page 17. I laughed for almost <laughs> five minutes afterwards. Marshall Moolbach, St. Louis, Missouri. Ah, what would Bruce Wayne say if he saw his ward cover with bat lipstick? 
Benny Raskill, New York, New York. The love scene on page 17 was disgusting. Mark Schmeiser, Concord, Massachusetts. Whoa! Whoa! I love the ending. Can't get over that smirk on Robin's face as he swung away. Scott, whoa! R. Taylor, Portland, Texas. Whoa! To the many of you who seem to have misinterpreted that kiss on page 17, we offer the following information. Babs Gordon is at least 25, the minimum age requirement for election to Congress. There are no plans to develop a romance between the two. That kiss, as correctly viewed by most of our readers, was Babs's way of putting Robin down for trying to come on like a father figure and or male chauvinist. Dear editor, I was not very impressed with the first issue of Batman Family. A lot of us, I'm sure, are interested in the team up of Batgirl and Robin. It's new and refreshing, but it leads to lots of problems. One is just how Babs and Dick are going to meet every two months. The distance between Hudson University and Washington DC is great, but they might meet in Gotham City. Of course, then they'd run into Batman and he'd steal the whole show. Pietro Martin, Toronto, Ontario. The idea of teaming Batgirl and Robin is crude. Crudy? Crudy? Wait. The idea of teaming Batgirl and Robin is crudy. Is crudy a word is what I'm going to ask you folks. Are you going to knuckle under to women's lib? Oh my gosh. This is the most ridiculous letter ever. They're even taking over the comic books now? Oh, people, I am not making this up. I'd rather see Batman and Batgirl team ups because Batman would hold a position of male dominance. Robin with Batgirl makes men seem less dominant. Oh my word. Oh my word. Unsigned Natalie Virginia. Oh gosh. I think perhaps because I couldn't handle reading that without smiling, I have to read it again in a very hickish accent. The idea of teaming Batgirl and Robin is crudy. Are you going to knuckle under the women's lib? They're even taking over the comic books now. I'd rather see Batman and Batgirl team us because Batman would hold a position of male dominance. Robin with Batgirl makes men seem less dominant. I'm signed, Natalie Virginia. Yeah, try to keep Batman out of the new story so that he doesn't become like the Man of Steel and Superman family. Always playing a principal part in the tale. Mike Dark at Royal Oak, Michigan. The father of the Batman family will pretty much remain in the background in this magazine. However, like an actor on the stage, we're playing to the audience. If enough readers favored, say, a Batman Batgirl team up, we'd be sure to deliver. I'm not really sure why people are complaining because, you know, you still have... Detective Comics and Batman going on. And I think it's nice to see um, supporting cast members in a book like this. I think that's what makes, you know, the Detective Comics when they had, like, the Renee Montoya or the Batwoman back up fun, you know, in present day. So, I, pff, whatever. Dear guys, your choice of reprints was okay. But please, with our original sources, Mike White, Machina, Illinois. Coming right up, Mike. In Batman Family Number 1, Commissioner Gordon's death threat was first delivered in Batman Number 186, November 1966. We face the challenge of the Man-Bat in Detective Number 400, June 1970. And Alfred unlocked the Great Handcuff King in Batman Number 28, April, May, 1945. Batman Family Number 2, Batgirl Breaks of the Dynamic Duo, split in Detective Comics Number 369. Now... 
Oh, sorry. November 1967. Readers open Alfred's mystery menu in Batman number 191 in May 1967. The Coup Master's topsy-turvy crimes were right side up in Detective number 351, May 1966. And the dynamic trio went into action in Detective number 245, July 1957. This issue, the crimes of the Kite Man were first committed in Batman number 133, August 1960. Challenge of the Batwoman startled us in Batman number 105. February 1957 and the year 3000 was first foreseen in Batman number 26 December 1944 through January 1945 coming bat tractions next issue background Robin celebrate the holidays separately separately look at how they emphasize that next issue background Robin celebrate the holidays separately huh huh Commissioner Gordon visits Washington, D.C., and his daughter, you know, I have to go back to this separately. Like, they really have to point this out to us because of this whole kissing shenanigan. Oh, my word. Plus, you know, I don't even know what to say. That guy, he'd be really upset because Babs probably was the one to get the hotel, and that made Robin seem dominated by Babs and Commissioner Gordon visits Washington, D.C. and his daughter, the U.S. representative, only to find his holiday reunion interrupted by a man who cries, cage me or kill me. Then Dick Grayson gets snowed under, this actually doesn't say anything about Babs, with trouble in Robin's very white Christmas, plus a classic collection of stories to round up this happy holiday issue of Batman Family swinging your way in early December. Well, guys, if you stayed with me and my crazy antics, then I'm going to give you a break. Because I'm like that. Uh, when I come back, I will review Batgirl number, oh gosh, 23, the penultimate issue, and Birds of Prey number 14. During the break, please enjoy the winner of Stephanie Brown's theme song. Yes, after so many candidates, the winner and best representation of Steph's character is finally here. It's Emergency by Paramore. And now, Zias's Radio Hour.
welcome back. Hopefully whenever you hear Paramore singing Emergency, you think of, of Stephanie Brown and her two-year tenure as, as Batgirl. And also, you know, just say a little prayer for Brian Q. Miller to be sure that he gets a great project and uh, definitely <laughs> the respect that is due and certainly deserved. So I hope to see him um, on a project soon. So here we go, background number 23, Here Endeth the Lesson. Writer Brian Q. Miller, artist Perey Perez, colorist Guy Major. Haven't felt this, this guilty in a very long time, is my quote that I pulled out. This issue, this issue begins with several cops drinking coffee and chatting at Gotham Central. Another high-tech member of the Reapers shows up and copies himself several times. As he explains that he is just there to distract the cops, we go inside the police station and see Miranda and Jabberwock incapacitating the officers in order to get Harmony and Slipstream suits. Meanwhile, Batgirl, Detective Gage, and some other policemen are standing over the body of Clancy Johnson, a.k.a. Grey Ghost. After Nick chides Batgirl for leaving the country in the middle of an investigation, she yells at him for withholding information about his past and his involvement with the Reapers. Nick then tells her of his tragic past and the accidental death of his fiancée. Nick gives Batgirl a recording that is for her eyes only. Clancy pops up on the screen and begins telling her about the plan of the Reapers concerning the nun's blood, a way to get metahuman abilities, and the fact that the client's check bounced. Now the Reapers know that it was all a wild goose chase and they are out for blood. Detective Gage gets a call about the break-in of Central and Batgirl guesses where the perps are going to. At Blackgate, we see Zane getting his outfit back amid a crazy outbreak of inmates. Just about to literally jump into the scene, Batgirl's on the phone with some potential backup. Steph realizes that there is some strange reason why the Reapers have not left the penitentiary left. Before leaping out of a helicopter, she and Nick have a moment, and she tells him to call Barbara. Steph makes a great entrance of the, into the penitentiary by using one of her creative batarangs. This isn't just her against Slipstream or her against Harmony. This is her against the Reapers. Steph makes a good call and gets her backup to arrive, including Supergirl, Ms. Martian, Stargirl, and Bombshell. The team makes short work of the Reapers with some added flair. As the issue comes to a close, Batgirl realizes that the Reapers must have been tarrying because they figured out their client was in Blackgate. She uses her intelligence to figure out that he or she must be in the only closed room in the place since all the other inmates were out and about. In a dramatic final panel, Steph kicks in the door to find her father, a.k.a. Cluemaster. So irony, right? I was just telling you about um, Batman Family Number 2 having his first appearance. So the main thing I, I disliked about this issue is the fact that it is the penultimate issue and it's it's all going to be over next-ish. Um, so just kind of depressing uh, to read it and know that it's coming to a close. I really like the interactions between Detective Gage and Batgirl because they both really seemed to open up to each other. And this is something which you often see happen between partners and it's it's a great thing to, to see and hear. Um, that we, we've gone from Steph really struggling to find her place to being openly accepted by the police is also great. We also have that, that really touching moment in the, in the helicopter, and I think it's even more um, potent because it could be their, their last. This story is well done, particularly because the plan of the Reapers, I think, is, is well thought out and believable. I like the fact that the Reapers are trying to break into jail rather than break Harmony and Zane out. I also like the twist wherein the Reapers never really had financial backing and they are so totally angry about it. 
I kept wondering what the point was in killing Grey Ghost, but this most likely, you know, is the reason. So if if the Reapers have no orders to follow and realize that they've all been wet on the entire time, there's really no reason why they should keep Clancy alive. And he was probably in close proximity when they found out. Uh, if you do recall... Brian Q. Miller definitely wanted to keep Clancy on for a little bit longer, you know, had he the time, but but he was going to end up killing him in the end. I just wonder how it would have played out had Brian had freedom to 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 keep writing. It seems kind of ironic that that Clancy was killed in an arcade, as if even in death he he cannot be taken seriously. I do like that even in death, however, that he he certainly has a concern for Steph. Some of you may wonder, I think, why I picked up the quote that I did, rather than the, the usual sark- snarkiness that I, I normally choose. And, you know, up to now, Steph has really been hard on Clancy. But you can really see that while she might not exactly care for him, she never really wanted him to get hurt. And I think this guilt stands in stark contrast to the guilt she felt way back when, in, in issue number six, if you recall that security guard that was killed. And this could, in fact, be the the time that she's referencing when, you know, the last time she felt guilty. So I think this guilt, I argue that that guilt seems strange. You know, it's just a random person. Yeah, you can feel bad that somebody died, but it was like she was really, really hard on on herself. Whereas this one, she was more kind of connected to it, so I could definitely see that. I love how Batgirl thinks ahead and gets something set up in case she needs help. This is a far cry from the Steph we knew in the beginning, who always leapt before she looked. The word Shazam is a nice touch by Miller, and it's great to see not only Supergirl, but an assortment of teen heroes. Again, we see how far Steph has come, not only in her career, but in her position in the DCU. I only wish we could see a team-up book with these girls. I think that would be fun. I must admit, I don't know much, if anything, about Bombshell, but I did find out that she, she actually has appeared in Teen Titans and has a similar power base as Captain Adam. Uh, you know, thinking about this, so doing my research on Bombshell, I was wondering how Batgirl would fit on the Teen Titans team. Um, I think that'd be, I think that would be fun. I think that it would work, but I think it would only work if Tim weren't there. On one team, there's really only room enough for one bat member and then of course we come to the end of course we have to talk about this that final panel is so powerful in all of its details the wall with several images of Steph not only as Steph but as Batgirl you have Cluemaster's costume which is just a little disturbing just hanging there as if at any moment he could he's just staying there because it's in his plan right now. Like, it seems with his costume there, he could just put it on and leave whenever he wants. And then, you know, his lackadaisical body language, which really shows his ease at the whole situation. And crowning it all are Steph's widened eyes of shock. Now, if you recall in my second interview with Brian Q. Miller, he says that Master was doing all of this in order to get his daughter's attention. As for what he will do after he has it, because he obviously has it now, is anyone's guess. I like how he saw Wendy's relationship with her father, um, a.k.a. Calculator, and now we are really delving into Steph's relationship with hers. How fitting that the book should end with this. Finally, I'd like to, to note the high-level intelligence with which Steph runs around in this issue obviously i talked about her coming in with with backup right away and you know she thinks hard she thinks clearly she's making educated leaps and i'm sure she definitely has respect of many heroes she certainly has my respect i give this nine out of ten bats 
And then we come to Birds of Prey number 14, also the penultimate issue, but I'm not as torn up about it. War and Remembrance, part one of two, No Sentence Shall Be Commuted. Writer Mark Andrego, pencils Billy Tucci and Adriana Melo. Inks Billy Tucci and J.P. Mayer, colors Nate Rufino and Rob Schwager. Missionaries, the only missionary I know is the position agent, Carl. Yeah, if you can guess, that's from Zinda there. The issue starts with Black Canary, Sandra Knight, a.k.a. the original Phantom Lady, and Lady Blackhawk entering the Gotham Veterans Hospital's Greatest Operation Charity Auction. Yikes! We learn that Sandra Knight's granddaughter, Kate Spencer, a.k.a. Manhunter, set this set up this event. As the three women meet and greet, Dinah hears a little about her mother, and Lady Blackhawk reminisces on the past. Babs and Helena are also present, but Dinah is careful not to be seen with them so as to avoid suspicion. We then have our first backflash, which takes place over Argentina in 1950. Zinda, Dinah, Drake, Lance, just so we don't confuse the two black canaries there, and Sandra are with a G-man flying to a mission to either kill or just stop a Nazi surgeon named Rutger Brueggemann. As the flashback continues, the three women change into nurses' garb and learn that their cover story is that they are Christian ladies on a church mission. As the group reaches a village, they realize rather quickly that something is not right when they find the village empty. Out of nowhere pops several Nazi youths, shooting everything, and unfortunately that includes Agent Carl. Back in the present, Sandra continues to meet different veterans and is spooked by a man with eyes that are black. Sandra releases his grip, and he seemingly goes back to normal. She remarks that something about him seems familiar. As the women leave, the man calls someone and alerts them that they are here. Later, at a fancy restaurant that Babs has some connection with, Babs, Helena, Zinda, Dinah, Sandra, and Kate all discuss work and raise a glass to the women who blaze the trail for the present heroines. Sandra goes to powder her nose and is attacked by some strange purple electricity goons. Zinda goes to check on her and finds Sandra on the ground and a man in the bathroom. Unheard of. The goons ask if the Americaner remembers them. As the fight ensues, the rest of the birds, plus Kate, run off to see what the commotion is as the entire wait staff disappear. The birds find three waiters tied up in the kitchen, but there is no trace of Sandra and Zinda. As the issue reaches its conclusion, Zinda and Sandra awaken inside of man-sized test tubes with five Aryan-looking goons, i.e. the probably the grown-up Nazi youth that we saw in the backlash, watching them. We then see an Aryan Dr. Frankenstein begin the process of resurrecting Brueggemann and bringing about a new Reich. Now this, my friends, is my idea of a Birds of Prey story. This is getting back to the essence of the series when Dixon wrote it and when Simone wrote the first volume. We have, to a degree, simple storytelling with two rather than three, or even more than three, trains of thought. We have the present and the past. And having only two segments going on at once, it makes the story more fluid and easier to follow. This issue, at least in the back flashes, but you can definitely tell the next issue will be the same, has the team working together. The weakness of past issues in this volume is the fact that it has not been a team book. It had the, the, the team split up and created individual struggles for different characters. And you wondered, you know, what's the point of this storyline? We really get to see the team dynamics in the story, which is the point of a team book, which is the point of Birds of Prey. I also like that the villain and his goal is simplistic here, because it has seemed like the previous villains and their plans were so convoluted that by the end you really had more questions than were answered. 
It's fitting that Andrago brings Kate into this issue, and in retrospect, it seems like she would be a valuable member of this team. More so, I would say, than Hawk, because you guys know how much I love him. For those of you who don't know the connection, Andrago is writing Manhunter and is a big fan of Kate Spencer. The presence of Kate in this issue, however, brings a big boo-boo with it. Earlier in the issue, Dinah is afraid that if she spends time with Helena and Babs, that someone will realize a connection. Okay, I get that. But how is Babs not at all concerned about eating dinner with Kate? Kate is not on the need-to-know list that Babs slash Oracle is really alive. And even if Kate does not know that Babs is Oracle... It would be easy to conclude by the same reason that Dinah didn't want to linger near Babs. So here we have lack of communication and uh, continual storytelling from one story to the next in the same book. The other problem I had with the issue also involved the scene in the restaurant. I am just so confused as to how Sandra wants to go to the restroom but ends up in the kitchen. I mean, she's old, but she doesn't seem senile. And then Zinda does the same thing. Then the rest of the birds do the same thing. You can't argue that the restaurant did not have a bathroom because Babs knew about the place beforehand, so it had to have existed in this universe before this issue. It just seems like a really strange plot and or art error. And now that I think of it, I also wonder why Zinda had to think to check on Sandra when I would think that anyone could hear a strike of lightning and or a groan or a shout. I do have to say that the art is well done in this issue as well. I have not been a fan of Mello in the past. You know, I've kind of complained about her depiction of the birds, but it seems like if she uses her own style, rather than trying to mimic Bene's, uh, she comes across better. I also like the softened colors and the pencils of Tucci in the 1950s scenes. I give this, whoa, really kind of stepped it up here, 8 out of 10 birds, it's definitely a nostalgia issue in more than one way. We're, we're really getting back to the golden era of Birds of Prey with this issue. And I'm always sorry that it was not Simone who wrote it so he could see her shine before this book ends. And speaking of nostalgia, as a random point, I would just like to say that if you get the opportunity to see Midnight in Paris with Owen Wilson, I seriously recommend it. It was, it was great. Very surprising movie. Okay, well, it's that time, folks. Babs in the Tube. The segment where I examine an individual appearance of Barbara Gordon in the media, whether it be TV or film. Currently, I'm watching the 1966 Batman TV series, and I feel closer, you know, to it now because I met Adam West and Burt Ward. So here we are, episode 102, season 3, episode 8, The Og and I. It's part 1 of a two-part uh, episode plot. November 2nd, 1967 was when it first aired. Starring Adam West as Bruce Wayne slash Batman, Burt Ward as Dick Grayson slash Robin, Neil Hamilton as Commissioner Jim Gordon, Alan Napier as Alfred Pennyworth, and Yvonne Craig as Barbara Gordon slash Batgirl. Guest starring Anne Baxter as Olga, Queen of the Cossacks, Vincent Price as Egghead, Alfred Dennis as Omar Orloff, Alan Hale as Gilligan, and Violet Carlson as Old Lady. Here's the quote. I would find you more attractive if you were on the right side of the law. This kind of life can only lead to trouble, woman. Incognito as a delivery man, Egghead kidnaps Commissioner Gordon from his office at Police HQ with the aid of Olga and a getaway balloon. 
They speared Gordon away to his hideout, where Egghead issues a ransom demand of a ten cents tax for every eaten egg in Gotham City. Realizing the only way to locate Egghead and Gordon is by splitting up, the dynamic duo converge upon the Bessarovian Embassy, while Batgirl joins ranks with Alfred Pennyworth to follow the Commissioner's trail by the strong scent of his aftershave lotion, Wellington Number no. 4 from Sumatra, which they hope and pray to find emanating from Egghead's digs. Meanwhile, Batman and Robin have opened a dialogue with Bessarovian Ambassador Omar Orloff, who is convinced that Olga will swipe the giant samovar of Genghis Khan, which is being held at the embassy for safekeeping. The duo agree, and they hide inside the samovar to ambush Olga. While Egghead is out collecting his egg tax at Gilligan's restaurant, Olga and her Cossacks raid the embassy and steal the samovar, with the caped crusader and the boy wonder tucked away safely inside. Later, at the hideout, the dynamic duo bursts forth from the samovar, only to be immediately gassed by the Cossack Queen. Robin and Commissioner Gordon regain consciousness to learn to their consternation that they are being made into borscht by Ambassador Orloff, who is revealed to be one of Olga's Cossacks, while the caped crusader is targeted by Olga as one of her future husbands. As Queen, she is entitled to six husbands, and Egghead is slated to become one of them. Outside the hideout, Batgirl and Alfred finally locate the scent of Gordon's aftershave and arrive in time to rescue the dynamic duo and the commissioner and make borscht out of the Cossacks themselves. Just as it seems the heroes have won, Egghead reveals his secret weapon. Two chickens who for weeks have been placed on a diet of onions. It, oh my word. Egghead and Olga toss the chickens' eggs at Batman, Robin, and Batgirl, each of which explode and emit clouds of tear gas. As the dynamic trio become awash in a warm sea of tears, Egghead, Queen Olga, and her Cossack beat a hasty retreat. Did you know that Jesus rode in on a donkey? I just thought I would say that because Egghead rides in on a donkey at the beginning. Anyways, how nice of Egghead to leave a note when he kidnaps the commission. But you know, why on the floor? What if it weren't noticeable? Is this what happened to Moose, uh, to the Moose on, what is his name, George, on Arthur before he left off the bridge? I don't know how these things happen. Whoa, whoa, major slip by Batgirl and her saying, kidnapped my fa. I feel like even Chief O'Hara would have caught that slip. It was, a, it was a bit too much. And that's happened in Detective Comics, too, where she's kind of slipped around people. I just don't understand. This this Batgirl Babs business, this syndrome, it's, I don't know, it's frustrating. I wonder why the heroes are all standing around waiting for the phone to ring and, and just right away know that it's Egghead when it does ring. What kills me about this show is the fact that the bad guys always seem to ask for something ridiculous. It, it, it's not world domination. It has to be something special like a 10 cents tax on eggs. I, I don't know. I disagree with Batgirl and her two approaches theory. You know, she thinks that it's better to, to split up. And, and I think it seems best to attack one approach at a time rather than have two different plans going on at once. But, hey, that's just me. I'm not a crime fighter. Okay, so Skipper from Gilligan's Island is on this episode, which is funny, and his name is Gilligan, the proprietor of a restaurant. I thought that was kind of funny. And whoa, Batgirl now has someone else to talk to. Alfred, you know, more than Charlie the Yellow Canary. I'm still amazed at Alfred's ethics and the fact that he has not told Batman who Batgirl is. I see this as both 
um, admirable and kind of a betrayal to Bruce. I mean, he's probably okay not telling Bruce since she's she's helping and obviously not a threat. But you would think they'd be like a barber and the person in the chair, you know, really tight. There's definitely a major love triangle going on. Gotta love the ship in here. Get over your own shipping bullshit. Between Olga, Egghead, and Batman. I mean, how would we connect those names? Olghead and Batga. Bat oh, Batka, that's probably one of the, the best ones that we've come up with so far. Because, I mean, cabs, you know, I don't know. Dibs. But Batka, I like it, I like it. You know, perhaps Olga reminds Batman of Talia. You know, what a wookie girl, though. You know, she can have up to six husbands. I mean, if you don't get it right the first time, you know, you have five other times to try. I actually wonder what Alfred would be like as a superhero. I mean, it's not too far off, really. You know, in the old Detective Comics, he sometimes had a short as Alfred the Armchair Detective. And we know he has a military background. And then here we see him punch somebody out. And he's older, so I guess apparently he can take it. But, again, the Babs as Batgirl syndrome comes through. How would no one connect the fact that there is more of a reason why Alfred is there? Uh, when when the dynamic trio and Commissioner Gordon are there, at least the commish recognized that it was a little strange. And how odd, the end, instead of Joker's laughing ass, we have Egghead's tear aches. Whoa. Yeah. 8 out of 10 still. I think this is generally like the 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 grade I'm going to give it. We have what I like to call the Babs' Batgirl Syndrome all over this episode and there meaning you know there are just so many ways that people could have discovered the identities of these heroes but uh we'll have to wait until next time to see how these bad guys are taken down and whether the eggs have you ever seen gilmore girls i remember that there was one episode there's this really terrible smell and it's because not everyone taylor dozie had shipped in so many eggs for an egg hunt and not all of them were found so then of course they went rotten so i don't know why i had that thought but uh hopefully you enjoy that i don't know you know it's airing on the hub so i hope that many of you have the opportunity to to watch some of these old ones so that you know you know what's going on and they are classic some you know the stories are ridiculous but really you can't you can't say, like, oh, it's awful. Because it's, you know, it's a piece of history. It's nostalgia, definitely. It's They're classic. Next up, I have my literary recommendation, of course. You know, you're going to think I'm a little strange here. But I'm going to shift gears a little bit, for a little while at least. You know, San Diego Comic-Con just kind of put a comic reading bug into me. And you might be wondering, well, don't you already read comics? And of course I do, but... I just now have an even stronger desire to really read a lot of past um, stories. So I'm going to start recommending different storylines or trade paperbacks and things like that that I think would be beneficial for you to read. And first up, I've got Batman No Man's Land. And I think that this perhaps is the first bat... How How's the best way to describe this? Bat-centric crossover? Would that be okay to say? I mean, obviously, it's a title that just went through the Bat titles. And I just, just finished reading, just kind of ate it up. And remember that Michael Bailey had, had kindly given these to me, so I'm very thankful for that. So it's a crossover storyline. It ran for the whole uh, year of 1999 through the Batman titles. And the lead-up story began with Cataclysm. And that describes a major earthquake hitting Gotham City. Oh, yikes. 
now Virginia's going to have a cataclysm. And this was followed by the storyline uh, Aftershock. And then we have Road to No Man's Land, which resulted in the U.S. government officially evacuating Gotham and then abandoning and isolating those who chose to remain in the city. And then we have No Man's Land, which covers in detail this, this period in the lives of the residents of the city, explaining all the events from the time of isolation until its time of reopening and the beginning of rebuilding. And, man, it is, it's such a fractured city. And, you know, just different gangs uh, having different parts. And the Blue Boys, you know, led by the Kamish. Uh, and then we kind of have, like, a bad sect of Blue Boys that go around trying to regain a lot of things. We have Babs' narrator at some point. We have Huntress going around trying to figure out what she's doing and putting on a Batgirl costume. And then we get Cassandra Kane as Batgirl. Just some really intense stuff, but it's probably one of the best storylines and maybe if I could say maxi series crossover that I have that I have read. It was great. Perhaps one of my favorite issues was Batman Legends of the Dark Knight number one twenty five. And it's just Batman and Jim Gordon. And it's really it had been the entire series I would say was leading up to this moment where Jim just felt betrayed that Batman wasn't there and then when he found it you know, he had returned. He just did not want to see him and was so angry. And then we have it in like half of the issue, I kid you not, there's just images my favorite books as a kid actually were, you know, the the picture books where you can make up your own story. But seriously, it, it really is just like thinking, what are these people thinking right now? Because there are no words, no dialogue. But it's just so powerful like that. And then Batman takes off his mask and Jim is turned around and he's, no, put it back on, put it back on. So, wow. It was just so great. I definitely recommend No Man's Land. I think in general, if you're concerned about, you know, I don't have too much knowledge of Batman or the stories before this I'm just trying to from that sort of standpoint I mean I think with every comic story that you jump into you're, there's going to be sort of a level of confusion but it just depends on how much and I think I've said this before how much you're you're willing to dedicate to looking things up that you don't get I mean Bane comes and obviously there's references to, to Nightfall so kind of looking back at that but I just think it's great and, and having oh the bad guys fight over territory and then you have this strange and, and really exciting interaction between Two-Face and Montoya, Renee Montoya, which kind of comes to a head later on. Uh, I don't know. I, I recommend it, definitely. And I know Dustin from the Batman universe, I think that this is, is what... he. This was one of his first stories that he read, too, so I think he's a big fan, but thumbs up, to be sure. Okay. Well... Was I too much for you? Was that letter section too much and you never want to hear those antics ever again? Let me know. I won't take it personally. Uh, you know, send any questions or comments to backgirl2oracle at gmail.com. Summer's coming to an end, so I don't know if that means that more people will start writing in or less. But uh, I, I'll be interested to see. I, I would actually like to see, as if we had like a letters page, what your thoughts are after Batgirl number one comes out that and Birds of Prey if you decide to pick that up. That'd be great to, to hear other people's opinions because I know there are people out there, you know, before I got into podcasting or message boarding, that was me, you know, kind of the person that 
doesn't necessarily get heard. So definitely, if you have an opinion, let me know, and I'll definitely read it. Don't make it too terribly long, though, right? Continue to sign that petition. Batman Year One comes out October 18th. Batgirl Year One, hello, man. There's a, there's a chance. I'm hoping. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gorham podcast. Thanks also to TV.com for the episode summary for The Og and I. Until next time, friends, fly on, Babs lovers. As a postscriptum of sorts, if you're wondering what the introductory music was, its title is Dirty Stella, and the mixer was none other than Joe Jinx from the Batman Universe podcast. Perhaps one of the best things I have heard in a very long time. And actually, it takes snippets of uh, a guest appearance that I had on the Batman Universe specials concerning the relaunch, so check that out. Just plain Barbara Gordon masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Batgirl! Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you?